Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3. This Tuesday, we do so with uh, the team of Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe and an attorney in town, among other things. Lewis Hallman is the managing director at Insight Analytics, insightanalyticsllc.com. And uh, Hugh, uh, we have on the phone today, Lewis, we have in studio. Hugh, you hear us okay? I can absolutely hear you, and I hope you can hear me. Yeah, just perfectly. Thank you. Clear as a bell. Uh, So I want to do what we do with you always, which is uh, COVID and culture, and then maybe get into some politics. Uh, Just as uh, to set the table, just as uh, we were seeing uh, huge numbers of vaccinations, uh, just as we were seeing governors let things up a little bit more here and there, we are now being told to be wary of a new mutant strain. Uh, We are now seeing here in Arizona a uh, fight between the Phoenix uh, mayor and the governor as to who has the authority to uh, lift uh, mask mandates. And uh, we are seeing um, the numbers change quite dramatically. Uh, Let's start with the numbers, Hugh, and let you and Lewis take it wherever you want and go from there. Lou, do you mind if I launch on the numbers? By all means. So uh, here is the reality that we're facing, the rending of garments, the hue and cry, no pun intended, uh, of uh, too soon, too soon, we're reopening, uh, no longer imposing mask mandates. Masks are now optional. So the governor is not, for example, telling people they're not legally allowed to wear masks. He's merely saying that people now cannot on state property and on city property be legally required to wear masks. The federal government did, under uh, President Biden, impose a mask mandate on federal property. And uh, let me start with that point. Isn't it interesting that Joe Biden, who was criticizing President Trump for not imposing a broader mask mandate on states and localities, suddenly realized the limit of federal power. That's right. His, fa- his mask mandate only reaches to federal property, and most important, uh, generally, people are realizing, to airports, uh, which are federally regulated and mandated. So here we have a guy who ran on beating up Donald Trump for not imposing a broader mask mandate, suddenly realizing and being demonstrated that he doesn't have... M- many clothes on. Maybe he has a mask, but not much else. The same kind of fight has now erupted in the state of Arizona between the governor of our state and the mayor of the city of Phoenix. In a context, however, unlike the run-up to the campaign and of the election day where we had spikes and all kinds of fairly dramatic numbers, we are now in an environment that is entirely different from what was happening uh, in the fall and certainly the peak of the the uh, pandemic here was January 11th, 2021. Even the earlier spike in the summer of 2020 was less than the spike that occurred in on January 11th, 2021. And even in that context, we still had, for example, in the state of Arizona, 8% of our ICU beds empty, and we had 8% of our inpatient beds in our hospitals empty. That was at the peak of infection, the peak of the cases, and the peak of people in the hospital. And interestingly, guess what percentage of our ICU beds are still empty? Only 9%. So we were seeing headline after headline scaring us all that people were going to die unnecessarily because our hospitals would be overwhelmed. And yet sitting here today, it is almost identically filled 
Our hospitals are identically filled as they were at the peak of the pandemic on January 11th. Uh, they just have different bodies in them. Lewis likes to refer to this as a substitution effect, and I'll turn that over to him. You just took but the words this, out of my mouth. I was just going to make that point that, yes, this does well, lend credence to the fact that what we're seeing when we see you know, spikes in COVID and changes in these kinds of behavior is not increases in the total number of patients visiting our medical facilities. It's recategorization of existing patient flows to include COVID-19. And keep speaking. in mind... We, we identified that COVID-19, there was a, there's an incentive for hospitals to identify patients as COVID-19. You come in for hip surgery and happen to test positive. You don't have symptoms, but you're now a COVID-19 patient, uh, not a hip surgery patient with COVID-19, because you, the hospital gets extra money from the federal government uh, for tending to the needs of COVID-19 patients. So there was a drive to push those numbers up. Well, during the entire height of these pandemic spikes, the newspapers were running stories about hospital personnel being exhausted and overwhelming the systems, and yet hospitals are running at exactly the same capacity with the same number or proportion of empty beds as they were at the height. What's the difference? Well, gee, it doesn't sell newspapers to tell us that uh, people are in the hospital still. That's right, as we've discussed before, Seth, you've understood this message repeatedly, that hospitals like hotels only succeed and stay in business if they have behinds in beds. And they've got to run at an over 80% and typically at a 90% capacity utilization so that they make enough money to stay in business. Well, now the governor uh, decides that as the numbers have slid down, we're at only 9% of our uh, ICU beds are filled with COVID patients and only 6% of our inpatient beds have COVID patients in them. That's even testing everybody. So now you have a very low utilization of our hospitals with COVID patients. You have a significant reduction in cases. And yet, uh, as the governor is starting to try to loosen things up and allow business to go back to a bit of normal, all he has done is rescind some of his orders that mandated certain behaviors. And now we have a fight between the mayor of the city of Phoenix and the governor. The governor rescinded his mask mandate uh, which allowed cities to mandate utilization of masks and counties to utiliz uh, mandate utilization of masks on March 25th. And the first thing one saw was the shot up from the left that this is uh, outrageous behavior, that the governor is uh, certainly going to cause uh, the spread of COVID-19. And all the governor did was say that it's no longer mandated that people can behave rationally and reasonably. They should still also wash their hands. This comes back Imagine to a, that. This comes back to another point that I think we've been bringing up kind of repeatedly, that there's this weird fixation, uh, particularly on the left, that... COVID warnings and restrictions and even scientific advice from medical experts is only valid, legitimate, and heeded if it has the force of law behind it. There is no tolerance or willingness to engage in any kind of personal responsibility or decision-making. There's no willingness to let the American people see the facts as they exist and let them make decisions without coercing them and browbeating. It's always you must do what we say or we will throw you in jail because you are a bad person. It's fascinating. Yes, and so why hasn't, uh, why hasn't uh, President Biden mandated mask wearing all around the country? Because he can't. And neither can the governor of the state mandate certain behaviors um, outside of a limited uh, realm. And in fact, by August of last year, court started ruling against his imposition on private businesses. Well, that is exactly what our federal system and our limited government system 
requires the conclusion. If you cannot continue to build the facts that you, uh, as a governor or as a, the federal government, can impose limitations, then you've got to back off from that. And that's exactly as the facts started to be developed, was in this country realized. In this context, then, we've got this fight between the mayor of the city of Phoenix and the governor. The governor said uh, that masks could no longer be mandated by cities, but certainly people could continue to wear them. Private businesses could mandate it on that private business's uh, property. Absolutely. There was some angst and dram over the fact that the governor rescinding the mandate caused businesses to have to decide uh, in the face of customers' interests what they would do. How terrible of the governor to allow different businesses to make different decisions and suffer the consequences of doing so. But I think that's exactly what capitalism is all about. Does it include making decisions on going to a cleaner restaurant than a filthier one? Absolutely. Do you go to a gymnasium or a gym uh, to work out that's cleaner than a dirtier one? Perhaps. But if you want to get a bargain, you're taking certain risks. And that includes whether or not you're going to get exposed to COVID-19 or the flu or any number of other diseases. So now the governor uh, says that uh, you don't have to wear a mask. But then something interesting occurred. There was a, quote, unanimous decision by the city of Phoenix Council a few weeks ago on March 16th to say that the city would start opening its parks. Now, the city of Phoenix, uh, like most cities, did not try to close their open fields and, and open spaces. But the city of Phoenix continued to require people not use their uh, ramadas and other spaces that would otherwise be reserved. They had them wrapped around with yellow caution tape. Well, most cities, even my city of Tempe, backed off of that and allowed ramadas to be reopened, but the city of Phoenix did not until March 16th, when the city decided that it was starting to look kind of foolish. And they also had to keep putting the tape up because most people were beginning to ignore it. And so the city rescinded most of those actions. And this is where it got interesting. For hold that, hold that part about the interesting, Hugh, as we hit, head into a break. I want you to finish that when we come back. And then tell me, yeah, who's on the right legal ground here, too, you, you having been the mayor of Tempe. Uh, so let me, let me just pause it right there, Hugh, and uh, we'll pick that up right on the other side of this break. The Hallman's always delighted to take your questions, too. The phone number six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman are our guests. They do COVID and culture with us every Tuesday afternoon. Got some calls coming in, and we'll put you on with the Holmans in just a few moments. I want uh, Hugh uh, to uh, complete uh, to complete the story he was telling. This narrative about what's going on is between the uh, the mayor of Phoenix and the state. Hugh, go right ahead, sir. You? Bueller? You we have Hugh? No? Yes? No? No, no? Do me a favor, uh, Lou, why don't you just call Chris, why don't you just call him back on the line and see if we got him. In the meantime, I'm going to take Matt's call and let him address it to Lewis Hallman. Hi, Matt. You're on with Lewis Hallman. Hi, Lewis. I, I just wanted to say, you know, how bad this... Uh, I'll call it a so-called virus because the survival rate's so high. Company I worked for last year, we had an order for about $1.8 million in aircraft. And we ended up canceling about two-thirds of that. Our company for the last three years had been going 
growing hand, you know, exponentially. We couldn't believe how fast it was. Now, within the next two months, we don't know if we're going to survive. My condolences, Matt. That's uh, that's devastating. For you know, for absolutely no reason. So this is the story, uh, Matt. Thank you for your call. This is the story, Lewis, that we're going to be hearing again and again and again, and we're starting to start. We're starting to see some uh, papers on this: uh, the impact of COVID nineteen on small business outcomes. Right. The thing about it is, the thing about it that's interesting is, I think we have your dad back. We'll go to him in a moment. Yes, you do. Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, the thing about it is, it's it's not the impact of COVID on small businesses. Right. It's the impact of our response exactly. on businesses. Yeah. You are exactly, exactly right, Seth. Exactly. We'll come back to that in a moment. Hugh, sorry we lost you for the technical difficulty. Did we figure it out? Yeah, we did, because I'm here again, and I'll be quick, because you guys were on to the subject that we really ought to get to. That's all right. Go and ahead. You were talking I'll, about I'll the state. I wanted to hit on, so we have a fight that's brewed between yeah. the mayor of the city of Phoenix, uh, Kate Gallego, and the governor of the state of Arizona, uh, Doug Ducey. And Governor Ducey uh, properly was a little offended by the fact that the city of Phoenix Council uh, ended up having to do a compromise little bill on March 16th. The city council unanimously agreed that the city would start reopening its parks but as part of the compromise, the folks on the right side of things uh, had to put up with the fact that for Easter weekend, the city said that you couldn't gather in the parks and you couldn't barbecue. So to make sure that uh, folks couldn't gather, they closed the parking lots for their city parks. The governor, rightly, I think, thought that that was absurd because what it did was force families uh, to gather indoors who might otherwise have gone to the public parks and gathered outdoors, and that's a safer thing to do. Well, he fired off a letter to on April 2nd to the mayor of the city of Phoenix saying, this is ridiculous. Why on earth would you make it inconvenient for people to gather outside uh, in the public parks rather than gather inside? And he cited uh, himself, he cited back to some of his earlier executive orders, saying you can't, as the city of Phoenix, prevent people from gathering in the parks. And of course, I'm afraid he's wrong. Uh, the, his executive orders uh, couldn't, can stop people from doing things, but they can't make people do things. That is to say, you can't make somebody go to a business. You can't make them go outside, and you certainly couldn't make the city of Phoenix open any of its buildings or its parks. And that is legally correct. The, the mayor of Phoenix properly called him on that. But what I found offensive by the mayor's response was that she attempted to have it both ways and complain about the fact that the, the governor of our state had imposed certain mandates to protect the public and uh, acted as if that was somehow outrageous for him to have done that in the first instance and then say that uh, he was wrong for do, doing so effectively and then turn around and beat him up saying that he had no right to make the city of Phoenix uh, open their parks. It is true. The city owns its parks, and the city can put in opening times and closing times at its whim, more or less. Uh, but what the governor, I think, was trying to point out in his letter and in his approach was just to say, look, look at the numbers. Uh, the numbers demonstrate that we need to start moving back to normalcy and allowing human beings to get back to things, because if we impose these draconian measures on folks when it is not easily justified, they will not listen to us 
that is the government, uh, when we need them to. And so it was ironic that the city of Phoenix is trying to continue to ban people from gathering on Easter weekend uh, and prevent them from barbecuing uh, w- based on the fact that the, the, the numbers might go up again. And so that brings us to the real issue that's been going on, that now you've got folks on the left trying to uh, ring the alarm bell that the fourth wave is on its way, that we're going to all uh, be subject to another massive wave for uh, the pandemic here coming up. And the real challenge is the numbers are so low right now that even if a wave is starting, it's hard to tell. And that is because the I think Lewis is best on this kind of thing. A 20% increase when there are five people uh, would be an addition of one. That's very different from a 20% increase when there are 10,000 cases out there, and you'd have uh, 2,000 additional people infected. I might phrase so it the this numbers way. are so tiny that the, the, the newspapers that we've criticized frequently keep using the numbers in a ways that are just nonsensical. That's exactly right. That, that the, what we're seeing is whenever we have a relative trough in the number of cases that we're seeing, you know, it, it, you would just expect, because we have a smaller sample size, that any perturbation, whether up or down in the rate of cases generated, is more noticeable, like more, more, more quickly, just because, again, you have a smaller basis of comparison, which would lead you to get a, uh, a, a larger effect more quickly. And since we have newspaper reporters who don't understand numbers, again, a 20% increase when there are five people means an increase of one person. Well, that's a huge percentage, a 20% increase, but they don't understand, and that's what's going on in the reporting about the fourth wave. That's a really good... The slight change in the small numbers are huge percentage increases, but very small absolute numbers. A, and again, a... coming back to the Arizona numbers, sorry, Lou, real quick, your current COVID patients in uh, regular patient beds, there are 546 people in Arizona hospitals. That's 6% of all the hospital beds. But yet we're still at 90% utilization of our hospital beds. The, the reality is that, yes, a 5% increase or a 10% increase of that would be a large number unless you recognize that it's 54 people, not 5,000 people. Go, Lou. Yeah, so you should be alert generally when you're reading any news articles about these kinds of effects. Pay attention to how the numbers are presented to you. Because you'll often see them presented in percentages or in absolute terms, depending on which one of those figures is more coercive and scarier. If, it's, uh, if it is a, seems to have a larger psychological impact to display the figures in percentages, media will often display it in percentages, and, and the reverse is true as well. That's a great point. All right, hold, the, hold that thought, hold that line um, there, Hugh. We'll get right back to you on the other side of this break. We have a few Listeners calling in as well, 602-508-0960. And then I know Hugh and Lewis wanted to give us a little bit more on a few of the cultural fronts regarding COVID. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. My guests are Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, as we have them here every Tuesday for COVID and Culture. Did you want to pick up from where we were? Uh, yeah, so I, I think that we had just had uh, uh, Matt call in, who made a uh, a wonderful point about sort of the struggles that businesses are having. And I think that that is an excellent segue into talking about kind of the broader picture of our response to the pandemic. So there's really been two schools of thought in terms of how we react to this. There's been one camp that has wanted to achieve a herd immunity. uh, And then there's been another 
camp that has favored a lockdown approach to dealing with the virus. Now, the lockdown approach makes a lot of sense in a world where things don't change, where we're not dealing with dynamics, where where a virus cannot then mutate into other sorts of viruses. Uh, and so the lockdown play only really makes sense if we can eliminate and contain the threat globally with all countries working together. As soon as a, a novel virus becomes endemic, becomes unremovable effectively, that strategy no longer makes sense because you are then obligated to remain in lockdown or at least be ready to go into lockdown in perpetuity whenever there happens to be a spike. Now, in contrast, the herd immunity strategy uh, suffers some of the health outcomes kind of up front, but then doesn't take on the long-term and continual economic damages that we're seeing. Uh, and so those are really the sorts of trade-offs that we're looking at. And the reason that I'm getting more and more critical of the, the sort of lockdown strategy is the emergence of three new strains of coronavirus, one from the UK, one from South Africa, and one from Brazil. Now, the UK one is the one that's been dominating the headlines most recently because it's uh, more virulent. It translates, uh, it, sorry, it transmits itself more efficiently than the original variant that we've been dealing with and uh, uh, was sl slated to become the dominant strain here in the US. But the other two have properties that I think really sort of underlie why this lockdown policy has been very misguided. The South African variant can uh, it seems to be able to transmit between us and rodents, meaning that, uh, of course, every major urban area in the country is home to massive rodent populations. And so this means that we will need to get boosters for this in perpetuity. The Brazilian variant seems to be able to overcome the immunity of those who had been infected with the original Chinese variant. We saw it as uh, multiple Brazilian cities that had achieved herd immunity kind of the old fashioned way, then had second sweeps of the new variant. And so now, in this, in this world where we have to deal with viruses sort of as the run of course, this is not the first virus that we've seen. We've dealt with SARS. We've dealt with MERS. We had the Spanish flu. We had Ebola. You know, we have to deal with new pathogens on a fairly regular basis. It's just part of the human condition. And so this has been an exercise when our response has gone wildly awry, I think, because it's not clear that the actual lockdown measures that we've taken actually prolonged life in any real way, just on the face of it, let alone the negative externalities they've brought from suicides doubling to uh, uh, business closures and, and all sorts of other calamity. And so we now have to ask ourselves, you know, if this isn't really radically improving our health outcomes and changing that, what is it changing? What is different about America as a lockdown society than before this? And it's going after our culture. That's what really scares me about this. And this, I think, is going to be the most pernicious consequence of the pandemic, because we went from a, a society that had a distinctly classical, classically liberal bent in the world to one where local leaders could determine whether or not you could go outside, what sorts of businesses could be open, and even if you could go to your own grandmother's funeral. You know, these are unimaginable authoritarian overreaches that 
are not commensurate with American values, at least as we understand them. But because of the perceived threat and because of the constant egging on of this, we have now accepted these changes instead of dealing with the uncertainty and the health outcomes of the virus. Hold that thought right there. Let's pick it up when we come right back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman. Don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Let me tell you about my friend Solar Sandy. She brought integrity back to solar. The difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is not only her integrity, but that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way. Solar Sandy is the right way. She has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in your pocket. So when you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months. And because it's March Madness, Solar Sandy's promotion for the first 50 families who sign up with her will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. No solar panel payment, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. There's no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. Again, that's AskSolarSandy.com. Lewis Hallman, you were uh, talking a little bit about some of the cultural uh, impingements, manifestations that we were just beginning to grapple with when we had to go to the break, if you want to. That's right. So, so we were talking about the sort of the differences between a lockdown society and a herd immunity society and sort of the, the continual overreaches that we have seen in the last 12 months that has, I would argue, very much warped and changed the political face of America. And let me see if I can I can boil down the the fear that I have succinctly. It's that for the vast group of people younger than me, their key experience in American political life is not what we think of as as being sort of classic American politics with the sort of mainstay issues that we would have dealt and, with. And by younger than you, you mean people younger than thirty? Yes. Um, so what we're seeing is instead. You know, the main focuses of the day being uh, uh, governmental paternalism, mm-hmm. corporate welfare, right. state overreach, and the restriction of personal freedoms. Right. This is the America politically that a whole generation of voters and citizens is growing up in. They're not getting the 20th century America that you recall, Seth. Right. They're getting a very different one. And my fear is, is that that America will be the one that persists, not the one that we remember. Hugh, I'd love your comments on that, and also, if you don't mind, how you see those two different Americas. Well, this actually gets into our battle that we'll have to continue another time about the difference between conservatism and classical liberalism, because I think what Lewis is giving voice to is what I would call classical liberal values, which I happen to believe are uh, a large portion of what we also today call conservatism. And I think he's spot on. Lewis has been... uh, ringing this alarm bell for some time, that the generation of kids, and Lewis is not 30, he's 28. Um, So I I think it's kids now between the ages of, say, uh, 12 and 22 have grown up in a society that is becoming, as he's noted, increasingly paternalistic with government overreach. And they have been imprinting on that. They're getting used to it. They are sitting in the pot of water as that temperature is being turned up at very great risk. We are failing to pass on to that generation of youth the principles that gave rise to this country and how it can only be retained. And if we do not 
get to it pretty quickly, we will end up with the major proportion of our population were voters coming to an understanding that it is normal. We have created a new normal for what they view as the area of government uh, involvement and interference. Is this, Hugh, a classical conservative text? You'd agree with me, I think, if I describe the road to serfdom that way by... um by Frederick Hayek. I think classical conservative text is a perfect way to say it. All right. So if you think about the road to serfdom, excuse me, is this not in part, is your worry not in part Frederick Hayek's worry that, and Lewis, I'd love your take on this as well, that if, if you grow up in a society that encourages the kind of paternalism you're talking about and discourages the kind of individualism we used to know, that there will come a point that people will, if that's what they're raised in, they'll want more of. That's what they'll want. That's their new set point of what's rational and to be expected. They will, they will, they will be basically paving—they're they're growing up in a world that is being paved— to serfdom, and they want that road to be, um, they want that destination, they want to get to that destination sooner, would well, be my analysis. Not only that, Seth, but, you know, if you're, if all you know is this sort of paternalistic overreach, then you likely don't, you may not even have the language to express what the alternative looks like. And it is or then, the mu- it is then impossible to move back to that then. A lack of experience in that. They have sacrificed liberty for security and will not know what it means to want liberty. And certainly, I can give you an example in modern society where the Soviet Union broke apart and portions of that society took hold of liberty. Kazakhstan is an example, and you know I do lots of work there. But Russia itself had developed such a culture of paternalism and the desire for safety and security over liberty, that they do not now know what it means to exercise one's liberty. Right. And you can see an analogous case uh, over the rise of China since 1990, you know, that it had all of the economic benefits of a globalized world without any of the political freedoms or expressions. And yeah. it remains almost impossible for the kernels of liberty to sprout there. Does it, um, does it, Hugh, does it make, you've, you've also, among other things, built schools. Uh, is it making, is this new, um, I don't know what you want to call it, ethos for now, uh, is this new ethos making us weaker? Will it make for a weaker America? Will it make for a weaker child? I, I think absolutely it can make for a weaker America. We, we have just come through a pandemic uh, where it was the U.S. Uh, uh, efforts to create vaccines, three of which now exist, unheard of to achieve that in less than a year. Uh, and folks on the left said it was impossible. And, and notwithstanding that, Operation Warp Speed led to not just one, not two, but three uh, uh, vaccines that are helping us attend to this. That is American ingenuity. That ingenuity comes from the intellectual freedom that people enjoy. It is the, the reason the United States and its culture is so much more um, uh, able to create new and different ideas is because we have a culture that is open to uh, pushing on the edges. And if one loses that sense of freedom, one certainly will lose, I think, the 
opportunity for this society to succeed and overcome challenges in the future. It is the difference between a generation, two generations ago, that ran headlong into uh, machine gun nests operated by a Nazi Germany uh, and an entire society that closed itself in its home for fear that it, there would be a small probability of getting a disease and then potentially succumbing to it. Hold that thought. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. We usually um, have the Hallmans in for this hour every week. Delighted to have done so, and we'll give them the last word. So we were talking about the kind of rise of authoritarian leaning in our political life here and lamenting the loss of the kind of uh, uh, classically liberal, libertarian, conservative sort of consensus uh, that, that had underpinned so much of American political thought in the past. And I think that a better, uh, another good way to conceive of this is not actually sort of liberty versus authoritarianism. It's decentralized decision-making versus centralized decision-making. The big virtue of a decentralized process is that it allows you to run multiple experiments in parallel. You can try many, many things, and people can live in whichever area tries the type of things that suits them. It's why we have sort of our, our very uh, uh, state-based system when, when compared to the federal government. But for the last hundred years or so, a little more than that, I think, we have been seeing a steady erosion of state power to the federal government. And this is very worrisome. You know, a lot of the reason that people want authoritarian decision-making, centralized decision-making, is because it's faster. Plato figured this out 2,000 years ago, that, that dictatorship is the speediest form of decision-making because you don't have to consult with anyone. The problem you- is that it is, it's not robust. If you pick wrong, if you make the wrong choice, then everyone is committed And so if our lockdown policy was the wrong choice, then the whole country is suffering for it. Nicely stated, Lewis. Thank you, sir. Hugh Hallman, you will get the last word next week. Hugh Hallman, Lewis Hallman, thank you both for spending some time with us and your expertise and sharing. really appreciate it. As to the rest of you, if you didn't get a chance to um, get on air and you called in, give us a call back tomorrow. God bless you all and class dismissed.